Today's scripture is from Matthew 9, verse 1 through 8. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. So This whole sermon series that we've been in is about these questions that Jesus uh, asked throughout the gospel. Um, and if you have missed the other ones, I mean, it's, it's great to go back, but you won't be lost. So, um, But I was looking through, just, just online, at different kind of proverbs that are from places of the world about uh, this idea of teachers that are asking questions. So I'm going to read a few uh, to you here. These are, again, these are just wise sayings that come from different cultures around the world. Uh, the first one that, that came to me or that uh, stood out to me is this. It says, the one who asks questions is a fool for five minutes, but the one who never asks is a fool forever. Second one, it is not the answer that enlightens, but the question. If you are truly seeking honesty, don't ask questions that you don't want the answer to. <laughs> I like that one. He who asks questions never loses his way. If you ask a question, you can't avoid the answer. And the last one that stood out to me, if you want to be wise, learn to ask wise questions. Then learn to listen. Again, these are just from all over the world, all over different uh, cultures, and it kind of lifts up the same thing, that, uh, that there's value in good questions. You know, I think we can all agree with that. We can think back in our own lives, maybe teachers we've had, people that can really ask a good question. Not just something that, that brings back some knowledge we have, but something that causes us to actually think critically and, and dive deeper into a subject. Maybe we're uh, in, in the depth of the question, we become uncomfortable in having to figure out the answer, but there's a lot uh, of power there. And, and good teachers know that it promotes uh, comprehension, that it promotes critical thinking, and, and it should be no surprise to us that as we get to the Gospels, we see Jesus, and he teaches in many different ways. Uh, of course, he teaches in parables. We hear about that a lot. He tells these short stories that have deep, uh, deep meaning. He also sometimes just seems to stand up front and give sermons where he just tells people uh, how things are. And then oftentimes, we actually see Jesus ask deep questions. And in these questions, it, it brings up 
uh, people's intentions. It brings up people's motives. It kind of stirs something that's, that's within. And Jesus sometimes uses these uh, in a way, particularly, we'll, we'll get to the text today, where it's like the teachers of the law are speaking. And Jesus kind of doesn't go with what they're saying, but he asks a question that gets to their motives. And I find these questions always amazing because they seem to just cut right through time. You know, we read them in Scripture, and it almost seems like, you know, of course, they're set in a certain conversation, but it seems like Jesus is speaking right to us. And our Scripture text today has one of those. Um, And it's this question, why do you harbor evil thoughts? Now, as a pastor, there's certain sermons that, quite frankly, are just easier to write than other ones. This is not really one of them. <laughs> I mean, what do, you, what do you say when you come up in front of a group of people and, and uh, you just, you know, Jesus says, why do you harbor evil thoughts? Why, why do you keep these inside? Not why do you have them. Why, why are you harboring them? Why are you nurturing them? Why, why is this... Uh, the way you're interacting with the world around you. So before we dive more into that question, let's look at the scripture passage it comes from. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And we'll just kind of walk through the text here. Starting in verse 1, it says, Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. So men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, so what's going on here? We find Jesus, and he's been going all around in the Gospel of Matthew, and he's been been teaching, he's been performing miracles. He's actually, even earlier, healed another paralyzed man. Um... And, and the word of his abilities, the word of his power has kind of spread throughout the countryside. And now he's in a new town. He's, he's come to this town and, and people have started to gather. And some of them are gathering to hear from him. Some of them are gathering to hear uh, the wisdom there. And other people are gathering just in a hope that they might see a miracle or they might even experience a miracle. Verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Okay, what are they reacting to? They're reacting to that Jesus looked at this man and said to him, your sins are forgiven. That seems pretty normal to us in a Christian church, right? I mean, this is Jesus. But if we put ourselves in their setting... Uh, These are teachers of the law. These are teachers of the Old Testament. And and they have pretty strict ways on how your sins get forgiven. First of all, God alone can forgive sins. Now, we have this this benefit of history that that we kind of know this this, uh, amazing relationship between Jesus and that Jesus is God and that there's this Trinity thing going on, right? But, But imagine the teachers of the law. They just hear this teacher and he says, your sins are forgiving and it stands out and they think, That's not his place to forgive someone's sins. The second part of that is there's a really strict system on how to get your sins forgiven in their world, and it doesn't take place in some town in Galilee. 
If you want your sins forgiven, you go to Jerusalem, and you go to the temple, and you either bring with an offering, or you bring enough money to pay for one, and and you go through this whole system, and you bring the the animal forward, and the animal uh, gets, gets put there in replace of your own sins, and And there's this whole intricate system. But yet Jesus approaches this man, or this man comes to him, and Jesus just tells him, your sins are forgiven. So it stands out like like crazy to these teachers of the law. They look at this and they're like, this man is claiming to be God. That is, it's blasphemous. Imagine this. I don't know, some of you are going to have a real hard time imagining this. Imagine you have a neighbor, and they have a little dog. I'm not talking about anyone's story. And this little dog, his favorite place to go, if you know what I mean, is right in the middle of your yard. This never happens in our area. But imagine this crazy scenario, right? The neighbor's dog keeps going in your yard, and you keep cleaning up after it, and you're you're starting to harbor these evil thoughts, if you will. Uh, and, and it keeps happening over and over again. And finally, you get into a conversation with your neighbor, and, and you build up the courage, and you're like, I'm going to bring it up, because this has really been going on for a long time. And, um, and you bring it up, and right in the middle of talking to your neighbor, your neighbor hasn't even said sorry, they haven't done anything, and some stranger walking down the street comes up to your neighbor and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, how would you respond? You'd be like, wait a minute. There's a process here. We live in a society. There's a process here of how this person's uh, sins, if you will, will be, will be forgiven. They, first, they need to apologize. Right? I think we can agree with that. Second, they should probably go into your yard and help clean up this mess. And third, it would be awfully nice if they would put up some kind of system as to have this dog not continue to do this. And maybe, just maybe, then I will forgive them. So who is this stranger that just enters in and says, your sins are forgiven out of nowhere? You'd be like, that's not your role. That's not your place. That's not how this works. And, and it's kind of a silly example, but to the teachers of the law, that they're seeing Jesus forgive sins, and they're like, who is this? This isn't his place. These are sins against God. These aren't sins against you. How, how can you just tell someone your sins are forgiven? You've just come out of nowhere, and you just say uh, that sins are forgiven. So how does Jesus respond? This is verse 4. Speaking of the teachers of the law, it says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain or why do you harbor evil thoughts in your heart? Like I mentioned earlier, Jesus just cuts to the chase here. Why do you harbor these evil thoughts in your heart. Verse 5, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Again, this is a paralyzed man that is before him. So which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? I feel like the spiritual part inside of us, it's like, it's like a trick Sunday school question, right? Like we, we just want to, we want to be like, no, it's way harder to say your sins are forgiven, right? But that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is saying, any random person on the street, you could be walking down the street, you could be at Big Trees Market, somebody's going to walk up to you and be like, your sins are forgiven. Okay. What's the evidence of that? 
You know, how, how do you see that? So Jesus is saying, well, I, I forgave his sins, but you don't really believe that. But if I tell him he's healed, he's either going to get up and walk, or he's not. Right? The evidence is right there. So how Jesus is saying this, that's, that's harder in your mind, because, because he's either going to get up, or he's going to keep lying there. Verse 5 again. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man, meaning himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who has given such authority to man. There's so much that we could talk about in this text. There's a lot going on here. We could talk about kind of the main point of this text, which is the authority of Jesus. This is whole, this whole section of Matthew. First, Jesus calms the storm, and then he goes across the sea, and he drives out demons out of a demon-possessed man, and, and then we get to this story where he's now uh, healing someone. And this whole section is about his authority over, over all these different realms, all these different areas. We could talk a lot about that. We could talk about how the crowd actually had the proper response, and the teachers of the law had the improper response to what Jesus is doing. Did you catch that? The crowd when they saw what Jesus was doing, they were filled with awe, and they started praising God for what he was doing. But here, the teachers of the law, who spend all of their time studying Scripture, all of their time trying to know God and trying to understand it all, they harbor evil thoughts within their hearts. But today, I want to focus on, again, this question that Jesus asks. And I think it's a pretty universal one. He's pointing it at these teachers of the law here, but I think he could be saying it throughout time to each one of us. Why do you harbor evil thoughts? Or why do you entertain evil thoughts within yourself? Now, before I get any further, I really want to clarify what kind of evil thoughts I'm talking about. I think one of the best ways to describe it is, is this very popular verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. You've been to a wedding in the last, I don't know, 100 years. Uh, you might have heard it. Uh, everybody loves it. It's actually about God's love, but that's a separate sermon. Uh, let me just read it for you, uh, and then we'll go through it again, thinking of uh, maybe the opposite of each of these things. So again, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Beautiful passage of Scripture. 
But I think when we think about these kind of evil thoughts that, that some of us or all of us at some point harbor within, I think we can just take the opposite. So this is, this is not a to-do list, but let me read it to you this way. We're talking about thoughts that aren't patient. Thoughts that are not kind. That are envious and boastful and proud. Thoughts that dishonor others and are self-seeking. Thoughts within of, of anger. Ones that keep a record of wrongs. Thoughts that delight in evil and reject truth. Thoughts that abandon and lack trust and lack hope and lack perseverance. And thoughts that fail ourselves and others. When I look at this text, why do you harbor evil thoughts? These are the kind of thoughts I'm talking about. I'm sure it rings a bell with all of us. Right, we all have found ourselves having these thoughts. But again, I want to be clear that, that one of my pet peeves, if you will, is when pastors stand up front and they give kind of easy spiritual answers to really deep problems uh, in our world. So I want to be clear that that's not what's, what's happening in this sermon. These, uh, it's these kind of thoughts that we're talking about, but there are legitimate thoughts that people have that they need to see therapists about, that they need to see psychiatrists about. These, these people, these men and women that have been gifted in these, these wonderful areas, gifted from God that come alongside people. So if you're experiencing you know, any of these kind of evil thoughts, I, d I don't want you to think that this sermon is talking about that. All right, Those are the kind of evil thoughts where people come alongside you. Uh, thoughts of, of maybe hurting yourself, thoughts of maybe hurting others, uh, these more extreme thoughts, please don't have them in isolation. God's, God's people aren't immune to this. You can't like all of a sudden be, uh, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, therefore I, I never struggle in this area. That's, that's actually kind of nonsense. That's, that's nowhere in the Bible and that's nowhere in practical life. Right? So, so if you're having these kind of thoughts, this is not exactly what the sermon is about. Uh, but I do want to encourage you to reach out, and if you don't know how, if you don't know the first area of how to even reach out and connect uh, with someone else, please see me. I'd love to come alongside you in that process and just help you uh, connect with someone. So again, before we get any further in the sermon, I just want to be really clear about that. Does that make sense? All right, I got some nods, so hopefully that makes sense. Uh, but we get to this question of Jesus, why do you harbor evil thoughts? And, and I think it's really important that we look at this word harbor. Uh, or some translations say entertain. Certain words like this, it's helpful to go back into the Greek language that the New Testament is written in. And, and I looked into the Greek and this, these words harbor, these words entertain, they work quite well. But there's some other words that uh, they also use to describe this. One of them is to meditate upon something. So this is not an evil thought that enters your mind and then goes away. All right, there's a sense of this, this thought staying. It's, you're meditating on it. You're reflecting on it. 
you're pondering it, you're, you're holding on to it. It's, it doesn't just go through your mind and then it's quickly gone, but you pause there. And then there's some moment where it starts to become your own thought, not just something that popped into your head and, and the feeling keeps going on and, and you keep having uh, these same ideas. I think it's an important distinction because there's, there's, of course, times for all of us where thoughts just pop into our mind. Um, I think if we're honest, that just happens. I mean, you're, you're uh, driving down the road or something, and you just think something, and you're like, well, where did that come from? That is not, it wasn't God-honoring, it wasn't uh, anything else. And, and sometimes I think Christians, we think that we're not supposed to like, experience that. Like It's like, oh, maybe I don't trust God enough. Well, no, you're also a human. So, so sometimes we're just, we have things that pop into our heads. And then we can just kind of say, uh, say a prayer and, and, and ask that, that it would go away or maybe sing a song from church that's been meaningful to you and, and just kind of move on with your day. But this passage is talking about harboring evil thoughts, holding them, keeping them safe, keeping them within. I love this image of harboring a boat. Now you can, we can kind of picture that. There's, there's a safe place, and, and the boat comes in, and maybe a storm is going to come by, and you tie the boat tight, and, and how the land is set up, it, it protects it. It holds it close. It doesn't let it go out there and get attacked by the wind and the waves, and that sounds beautiful until you start to realize that he's talking about evil thoughts. That the best thing we should probably do with these thoughts is let them go out there and get attacked by the wind and the waves and get sunk out in the lake somewhere, right? So, so we talk about these evil thoughts and it becomes this, this thing that you draw near to yourself. And you say, oh, I'm going to protect this. This is going to be part of who I am. This, this way I think about other people, this way I think about uh, the world around me. So what does it mean if we experience or we have uh, these kind of evil thoughts? And, and, and again, I'm talking about that list from 1 Corinthians where if we flip that, uh, these kind of thoughts that, that as I read them, um, I feel like sometimes people don't realize, but I also can see you all uh, <laughs> from up front. Uh, you're all looking at me, I'm looking at you. Uh, and I could see different shifting, different reactions through the room with different ones, and that's fine. Uh, but we all know what's being talked about here, right? And, and again, to a certain extent, if we experience this, it means we're human. And that's, that's fine. We should be aware of that. It doesn't mean we continue to go into that. It doesn't mean we entertain these thoughts. It doesn't mean we go uh, deeper into these. You know, if you're at home and, and you look out your window and your neighbor has an awfully nice house and the thought pops into your head that you're envious of that house next door or, or maybe closer into my neighborhood, into my own life. I'm walking down the street and, and there's some houses near mine that those decks off the back. They got some nice canyon views. And I think, oh, that would be awfully nice. And to think it would be awfully nice is one thing, but to, but to start being envious, to start to, to wish you had and to hold on to that, we all know that it's not God-honoring. It's not saying, look at what I've been blessed with. Look at how uh, I am. 
But again, the problem here is when we start to entertain these thoughts. You know, I know some of you have wonderful gifts of hospitality. This is not the time. <laughs> when you're having these thoughts, don't, don't entertain them. Don't invite them in. Don't cook them a nice meal. Don't make them feel comfortable. Don't, don't draw them into your space and say, oh, come be a part of who I am. Let me learn about you. Let you learn about me. This is wonderful with your friends. This is terrible when you're talking about evil thoughts that, that we try to hold on to or that we think will somehow make us feel better. Maybe they put other people down and we feel like it lifts us up. So the main point here is, is you're going to have these thoughts through life, but don't entertain them. Don't nurture them. Don't hold on to them. Why? Because it doesn't take very long before you see how they start to influence you. They start to change you. They start to change who you are and how you interact with other people, how you think about other people. It's amazing how, uh, how slippery of a slope this is. And, and pretty soon you find yourself and, and all you do is complain or all you do is, is be negative or be proud or be boastful or, or whatever it is, whatever area uh, you tend to slip towards. Plus there's this whole other part where our thoughts actually matter to God. It doesn't sound that nice to say out loud. Because there's a part inside that we kind of fool ourselves. We kind of think, like, what's going on in here? This is my own little private world. No one else needs to know. I can think things. I can, I can drive down the street and see something, and I can judge someone. And, and that's just between me and me. But our thoughts, especially in Scripture, our thoughts matter to God. They're not secretive. They're not our own little world that we live in. The Bible teaches this pretty clearly. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Speaking of God, it says, He brings to light what is hidden in the darkness and exposes the motives of the heart. Psalm 139, verses 2 through 4. He knows when we sit down or stand up. He knows our thoughts even when we are far off. He knows what we are going to say before we say it. Romans 12, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So it's pretty clear to see that our thoughts matter to God. This is not just some kind of private little life that we live inside of our heads and we can just kind of pretend that it doesn't affect anyone and, oh, I thought that, but I didn't act on it. Well, you're, if you thought it and you started to harbor it and you started to hold inside and you start to ponder it and you start to meditate on it, 
you're probably not that far from acting on it, but it's not only acting on it that matters. Like our thoughts actually matter. And, and it's not, again, in this way of feeling shame or feeling like, oh, I, I, I say I'm dedicated to God, but then I keep having these thoughts. It's like, well, there's a part of that that's you're human. There's a part of that that you might be listening to the voice of the deceiver, the one who lies, especially when their thoughts about ourselves, our own self-worth. You know, some of us are, are way worse at harboring those than we are at harboring judgments towards other people. Some of you just got real quiet. <laughs> you know, when we think about other people, we're like, yeah, I'm doing pretty good there. But, but what thoughts are you harboring about yourself? What thoughts are you harboring about your own value? How much, how much you're worthy of love? How much you're worthy of God's love? How much are you worthy of God's forgiveness? We can be guilty of, of believing lies that are terrible lies, that are not God-honoring lies, that are not the words of Christ, that are not the words of, of Jesus on the cross or or the words of the empty tomb. But there are these, these things that seep inside, and for some reason, we, we harbor it. We, we, it's almost like we're protecting it. We won't let it go out, and, and just, that's why I love this harboring language, because if you let go of it, what, what does the ship do? It goes out into the sea, in the wind, in the waves, they capsize it. So, so it's not even doing this thing in like your own power. It's, it's, a strange, it's a strange connection because normally the wind and the waves are like this, this kind of evil force of nature, but here that's the force of God. And it's the force of God that wants to speak onto these evil things that, that we harbor, that we hold close, that we won't let go of, that we tie tight and we let be protected. When our calling is to just let it go. Just let it float out there. Let God's uh, wind, let God's waves, let this, this righteous, holy storm just capsize this thing and sink it. Quit holding on. So again, the same question, why do you harbor evil thoughts in your heart? You know, we're all, we're all guilty. It's a fair question. You know, sometimes we're, we're even worse than harboring. Sometimes it's like we feed it. <laughs> sometimes we encourage it. Sometimes we, we build onto it. We, we one-up it, you know, if you will. Oh, here's this thought. Well, I can do better than that. <laughs> you know, and we start trying to leap, leapfrog uh, this thing. It's almost like in this text, and there's several other ones, that, that again, these words just like cut right through time. I don't know if you experience that when you're reading the Bible, but there's, there's words you get to, and they seem pretty like set into like a historical context, into what's going on, and then there's other words that, that just seem to cut right through, right to where we are, and these questions are just wonderful at it uh, in this way, because again, it shows shows deeper motives, it shows deeper parts of who we are. 
in just a few moments, a little bit later in the service, we're going to take communion. And I just, when I, when I was planning this sermon series and I, and I eventually saw that today that this sermon was going to be a communion Sunday, I was like, oh, that's perfect. Because <laughs> I feel like that's what you need <laughs> in this moment. But that's what you need is this, this sense of, of bringing our whole selves before God. That at this table, at this meal, that, that this, isn't, this isn't a time for, for you to bring part of you. Oh, I'll bring the nice side. I'll bring, uh, you know, Pastor John, but I'll leave father and, and husband at, at home. <laughs> you know, I'll just, bring, I'll just bring the nice part of who I am to the communion table. And that's, that's not what it is. This is a time where we bring our whole selves, our flaws, our failures, every, every part of who we are, and, and God meets us right there. That's actually some of, the, some of the theology of this table, is that God promises, Jesus promises to be there in communion. I, I find that beautiful. That's what Scripture says. He says, when you do this, I, I will be with you. I will meet you here. I think we can trust that. I think it, it, it sounds... Sounds crazy to say the opposite, right? That Jesus would say something and then we'd be like, well, I don't know if I fully believe that. Maybe that was just about that time. No, he says, when you do this, I will meet you. And when we take this meal today, he will meet you in this meal. And it's, it's the real you. It's the full you. So if there's something that you need to just surrender to him before that, I encourage you to do that in the rest of the service as we lead up to it. Just trusting and leaning on him, knowing that, that in the words in, in a couple chapters here in Matthew, in chapter 11, we get these other words of Jesus where he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that weight, that pressure, that heaviness that you've been holding, all of it, he wants to take that from you. It's actually this beautiful, like, agricultural image. I don't know if you know much about yolks. Uh, it's not the egg kind. Uh, they were actually really, like, custom-made back then. So it was, it, was a, uh, it was a wooden piece, and it went over the shoulders and, and, and neck of two ox, and they would be used to pull a plow. And they were custom-made because normally they would be a, a much older ox that was much stronger and then one that was being trained. This is how they did it. That way you had the next generation of strong ox, right? And they'd be custom made to really be offset on how the, how the pulling was happening. So we kind of think of it as like an even thing. You know, I pull, you pull, you know, kind of thing. But that's actually not how they were made. They were made intentionally that it fit really well onto the, the older, stronger ox that had been there before. And that's not you. That's Jesus. It fits really well on him. He's pulling really hard. And the other one that he's yoked to, that one is being trained. That one's walking along. That one's learning how to pull. That one's learning this entire process. And some of us have been bearing all this weight ourselves. And that is just not the promise of God. You can feel it in your shoulders, can't you? You've been pulling so hard. 
And that's not the promise of Jesus. Jesus says, if you come to me, my yoke is easy. Tie yourself to me. Connect yourself to me. I will be doing the pulling. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will carry the weight for you. 